but there's the electromagnetic spectrum is huge. So RF exists a little higher in the frequency. And below that, you have ELF, BLF, HF, a lot of low frequencies. The fact that it's traveling down a wire makes it an antenna. And so it will radiate. And so I was tinkering around with my little magnetic field tester in our room, and I realized there's like really high magnetic fields. So the resultant power at a point in space is the summation of the antenna gain plus the power. So if you have two antennas that transmit one watt, and one has 10 dB of gain and the other one has 1 dB of gain, there's a lot more power coming out the, the 10 dB gain antenna because the resultant EIRIP is high. Since the 5G antennas are much, much more highly directional, and these, their beamless are much finer, and they have many elements in the array, it's many dB higher in received power. Something I've realized in, since COVID was you talk to people and they don't have that much confidence in their medical doctor. They go to the doctor and the doctor gives them advice and they're like, I don't know if I really trust it. I've heard that so much. And maybe that's what it's gonna take. Maybe it's gonna take people doing like basic health research on their own to wake up from this and seeing that the big system doesn't really care about your health. Right? It's there for profit. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right, we are live here in Longmont, Colorado. I'm with Rob Rebick. My good friend, we're going to talk about a lot of cool things today, but more importantly, we're outside in the sun. It's, what is it, January 29th? It's pretty tropical here. Rob, how are we doing? Good. Excited to be on your show, man. Been a long time coming. Yeah. We have a lot to discuss. Rob is an expert in EMFs because he has, what, 20 years of experience as a radio frequency engineer. Is that yes, correct? In radio frequency engineering, yes. So we're going to dive deep into EMFs, 5G, Starlink, just Wi-Fi, everything. Um, he's also an expert in Bitcoin, has been a Bitcoin hodler since 2013. Long time ago. So he's an OG, a Bitcoiner, and then he is also the owner, founder, operator of Alpabar, which is my favorite and most convenient nutrient-dense you know, snack, food pemmican bar-esque treat so absolutely where to begin okay so how did you become kind of a sovereign individual maybe what was your storyline there and did that when you were working as an engineer did that kind of make you think of the you know potential health effects of electromagnetic radiation i guess walk us through the beginning years of rob as kind of like questioning the system and centralized authority. Absolutely. So I grew up as a young boy with a father who tore apart uh, motorcycle engines. He was a mechanic. So while I was out there watching my dad do that, my dad would go to like Goodwill or some art place and get me a, like an old VCR and I'd, I'd take the thing apart and then I'd stick it back together. And that's kind of where I really got into electronics. My uncle was also an electrical engineer. So I had that other sort of role model on my side. And I knew what I wanted to do since I was in high school. And so when college came around, 
I knew exactly where I wanted to go and I went straight into electrical engineering. And I remember from being a little boy, I always was so curious about the phenomena of light because I would look around at all the phenomena was happening around me and I thought light was the most intense, the most unknown thing. It was absolutely fascinating to me. And so I knew exactly after I was done with my general uh, bachelor's degree, I went into electromagnetics and focused in on electromagnetic theory. And that brought me to Boulder, Colorado. And that's where I worked at a, a defense contractor here for over 10 years. And during that time, I also got into Dave Ramsey about 2010-ish, up to 2014-ish when I had a lot of student loans to pay off. So at this point, I wound up with a, a pretty good engineering salary. And I really wanted to pay off my loan because I hated debt. And at that time, this was kind of after 2008, and I didn't really have any stake in the game in 2008. So I really didn't lose anything, but it certainly woke me up to watching parents lose stuff and kind of woke me up to the whole monetary system. So in that time frame, I became really into gold and silver, but I just saw the problems with gold and silver. They're not perfect. I mean, you have paper gold and silver that the banks make and inflate and they trade paper gold and silver and inflate the supply and they you have these IOUs. There's so many problems with it. And I was literally just waiting for Bitcoin to come around. I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea it was invented at that time. But in my mind, I was searching for it. And so I was purchasing a private internet access subscription on privateinternetaccess.com. And I was at the point where I was paying for the credit with a credit card. And I just thought, this is absurd. Why would you buy a privacy tool and then dox yourself with a credit card immediately? Because with a credit card, you send your first name, last name. And with that comes all of your information. And, you know, I saw that little orange tilted B symbol and I didn't recognize it. And so I went to Google and typed Bitcoin. I stumbled across the white paper. And with my background in science, technology, computer networking, all these things, monetary theory, um, it just snapped instantly. Like I didn't need the 10,000 hours to know Bitcoin was it. I just, I knew right away it was it. And from that point on, I became obsessed with Bitcoin and it kind of, took over my life for about 10 years as I, you know, kind of became my own version of Bitcoin Jesus in my, in my community, like my work and my family, you know, and after about 10 years, I realized I couldn't get that many people interested in it. And I think that's a common story. And so for the last, you know, five, six, seven years, I've been pretty quiet about it. And I just keep to myself and I'm still a Bitcoiner. But in terms of electromagnetic theory, I was obsessed with the phenomena of light. And I, I was just blown away that James Clerk Maxwell came around and summarized light into four equations. And so I really obsessed over those four equations. And you could spend a lifetime obsessing over it and not even fully understand it. It is a very complicated subject because we live in a fully electromagnetic world. Our bodies are electromagnetic. Everything is electromagnetic. And so when I got into working, I wanted to do stuff for space and like stuff to push humanity forward. But unfortunately, the money is in the military. And so pretty much the only job I could really find specializing in EM theory was with the military contract. And so for the next 10 years, I, I stared away from weaponry. I refused to work on any kind of weapon systems. And I was like the only person, the old weirdo who wouldn't work on weapon systems because it was just crossed the moral boundary for me. So I specialized in defense systems like electronic jamming and electronic warfare, things that was saved military personnel um, and communication systems. And so I, I've designed 
an antenna for every platform you can think of land air sea and i've even done stuff for space but it's never made it up to space so um i have a huge experience in onboard communication systems and jamming systems um you know all the way down from high frequency all the way up to you know higher upper bands ku ka and even higher so i've done a lot of stuff with that uh through my years at, at my old company i i created a new technology and um, active electronic steering arrays, AESAs, and I was, I got a patent for that. Um, yeah, so. It's, it's just such a perfect, you know, bridge between us, like two, two electrical engineers who are really into EMFs and their potential effects on our health, um, two Bitcoiners, two, you could call meatheads, uh, really big in regenerative agriculture, locally sourced meat. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And yeah, even just staying here in your property, you got a nice plot of land, some, some chickens running around, we're outside and it's, it's so great. I'm so excited. So let's dive in maybe first to the EMF stuff. And I want to just ask, I think I asked you this yesterday is when did it start to click for you that, you know, the things you're working on and the things we're just surrounded by completely in terms of radio frequencies may actually be detrimental to our health. You know, honestly, it wasn't until about 10 years into my career. I mean, I worked in a facility, a laboratory where there's, you know, 10 to 15 EMF type projects blasting in a building all day long. And I spent all day long in there. And surprisingly, I had two children already. So, so I didn't get affected that bad. But it was when I, so I, I, I talk about falling down two rabbit holes. There's the money rabbit hole and then there's the food and health rabbit hole. And I didn't fall down the food and health rabbit hole till later. I mean, I've always been like a healthy person, quote, but I didn't really understand the int intricacies of it until much later on. And then, you know, with my wife being pregnant and her concerns, her asking me questions about Wi-Fi and having tablets on your belly, it really opened my eyes to like, wow, this is something that there's a lot of problems with people's health these days and no one knows the answer to them, but the answers seem obvious and EMFs just because they're not not just because they're non-ionizing doesn't mean they're perfectly harmless there's more to the story here and there's a lot more to the story and there's a lot of things we have to uncover and figure out and so that's when i kind of dove down that rabbit hole and did you you know just think of it logically like how did you build upon that um just you know speaking with colleagues like what were great resources and what was it like yeah potentially talking to coworkers and other people because what i've found is that you know, people who know the technology really well have no consideration that could be possibly harmful to our health. Like you said, it's non-ionizing. You know, I get message, messages every day about this. It's non-ionizing. There's only a thermal effect. Um, and yeah, there's, there's almost no engineers who actually understand the biological effect. But then the researchers or, or the folks who are into the bio biology piece, uh, they don't know enough about the technical piece. So that's why, like, I'm so excited to talk to you. And that's why I send you like voice notes all the time, asking questions and it's, it's fun. But you know, how was that process for you? I was met with the same type of experience. I mean, I worked around 150 people in my company and I'd say there's like up to 50 engineers, you know, and they, I was continuously dismissed about Bitcoin and I, and I wasn't dismissed about the EMFs cause I didn't engage in those kind of topics. But generally speaking, we were all taught that it's non-ionizing radiation and it's completely harmless, right? It's not going to, it's not ionizing. It doesn't go through your DNA and break it apart and bust everything up and kill you fast. But 
you know, deep down, I always knew watching the proliferation of Wi-Fi and wireless technology, it just hit a breaking point for me where I was looking around and there's like six Bluetooth devices in my kid's room. And that was like the breaking point for me. And so that was the time. It was really my kids that drove this because I wanted my kids, I wanted to uh, exercise a precautionary principle. On one hand, I don't exactly know all the biological effects of EMFs, but I know that they're not zero. And so I don't want to have my children as experiments in this kind of game. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah. And I mean, it's so important, right? Because it's like, we, we don't even know. You could read all the research studies and you can pick them apart. Like maybe they're not perfect. Maybe they're not on humans. Like we don't have enough data, but it's to me, it warrants enough skepticism to warrant caution. Right. And, and, you know, there's simple things that, that you can do. And it seems like you've obviously implemented a, a lot of these things um, in your daily life. Did you notice a, a change in personal vitality by using technology differently? And kind of what were this? What were some of the first changes that, that you made in your day-to-day life and, and how you use the internet, how you use technology? So kind of our biggest changes that are pretty much predominantly our only changes was we kind of ditched Wi-Fi. Like I realized I don't need Wi-Fi. Um, and secondarily, I used wired Ethernet everywhere that I could. And I still have a cell phone. I'm not, I don't not have a cell phone, but my wife and I exercise airplane mode like no other. We get on our phones, use them for a minute, and then turn on airplane mode. Um, the biggest thing I realized is that it kept me from just like mindlessly being on the internet all the time and like checking my phone on this really periodic, frequent basis throughout the day because I knew that it was in airplane mode. And at the beginning, we would only use our phones connected via USB-C or lightning adapters to Ethernet. We wouldn't even use the Wi-Fi for a little while. Now we, we kind of use it strategically. And I really think that's the good balance here is you don't have to have none as there's a good balance. And it's really this proximity to your, the biological being, uh, under study that is important. Like you don't want to have the phone right up against your testicles. You don't want to have it up against your head. You don't want to, if you're a woman, you want to place it in your breast right here. Just keep the thing away from your body. I mean, even if you go into your iPhone under general settings, you can find the disclaimer that talks about RF exposure right? They're not even denying it. So, and I believe, someone have to fact check me on this, but I believe there's some nomenclature, some talk about even keeping a spacing from your body. You're not even There is, yeah. There, they, the, at least an iPhone, because I have this in the EMF course, is that five millimeter distance is what they recommend. They say always use speakerphone or hands-free or headphones. Or Never hold directly against your body. Right. But yet, you look around and most people are just having it jammed against their phone or have a little Bluetooth thing or, you know, even the Bluetooth music. So to answer your question, I think it kind of, I feel like everyone kind of feels this when your life is over technologified. It's a BS word, but when you have too much technology, you just don't, there's something wrong with it. And when you remove a lot of it, which this low EMF route, the side effect of it is you kind of remove a lot of these things and it's just liberating. It's free. I mean, it's really great for the kids. Kids don't belong on their games for hours and hours a day. 
right now we limit we have we have games for our kids and we limit them for one hour in the day and usually what happens is they'll chew through that hour at like 11 p.m or 11 a.m and by noon we're outside the rest of the day if it's nice yeah i think i mean that's the way to raise children there's too many digital babysitters nowadays and once you give in that dopamine reward system is just so like hardwired for them to want it more and more and more and you know they're getting hit by everything from you know rf to blue light to low power frequencies it's it's so scary and we know that their biology is way more susceptible so maybe we get into some of the the technical details now um because that's what's really fun and your expertise is is really in is maybe we start with how are radio frequencies different from natural frequencies, say, coming from the sunlight? And, and why do you think this is like a, a problem and, and getting into kind of all the aspects of it and the, just the nature of really a, an RF wave? And then we could talk about the difference between Wi-Fi and 4G and then 5G and future things that, that are also really fun. Right. So the the RFs and, you know, general EMFs that we're exposed to, they're, they're engineered signals. They're very polarized um, and they're intentionally designed like they are. They're pulsed. So being pulsed is a really big problem because nature doesn't really pulse signals like that. Um, you can probably go into the more biolog biological effects because I'm not as aware of those. But it's a, another thing is the power density. Um, we're seeing power levels that human body has never really experienced. Um, in terms of the ones that are native EMFs, our biology has adapted to those kind of fields and structures for, you know, a long time. These non-native EMFs, um, the RFs, which are in like, you know, 800 megahertz and up are pretty, pretty non-native and we didn't adapt to them and they've really been a flash in the pan. I mean, when did Wi-Fi spring out of existence in the mid nineties or two thousands, it grew really big. Yeah, it's all real, relatively new, right? So maybe my question is, yeah, maybe you could explain polarized polarization a little bit and then why why are they pulsed and why do we have to have such an alien wave compared to what we're naturally getting that's, you know, non-continuous, it's co very coherent, very polarized. Like what is the reason behind this from a technology perspective or design perspective? Well, I think it's more of like a a signal processing perspective. You have to have these type of signals so they can travel the distance and relay the data. Um, what was the other question? Just explain polarization. Um, so polarization is the alignment of the electric field. It's defined by the electric field. And so an electromagnetic wave has an electric component and a magnetic component that are transverse. They're, they're orthogonal to each other, 90 degrees separated. And so the polarization is defined by the electric field. And it can be vertical or sorry, linear, which linear encompasses vertical, horizontal, or any vertical angle between, like it could be slant. Um, and then there's elliptically polarized waves. And a special case of an ellipse is a circle. So you hear circular polarization. So truly it's elliptically polarized. That's when the electric field uh, rotates as it's moving in space along its direction of propagation. And so the way an antenna works is if you transmit a signal with, a, say, a vertically polarized electromagnetic field, you have to have a vertically polarized antenna to receive it. If you have a 45-degree slant antenna, you will receive a portion of that signal. If you have a horizontally 
positioned antenna, you will receive 0% of that signal. It's completely orthogonal to the direction of propagation. So you have to match the transmitter receiver of an antenna system and match their polarizations. Yeah, that's something recently I kind of discovered and realized as well. And that kind of sunlight is is unpolarized, or which basically means it's kind of random, right? There's no... Say that it's random. I think it's, it'll be always polarized at some given point. But, you know, as... So if you, if you take a vertically polarized wave, if it's perfectly like man-made vertically polarized, and it reflects off something, well, it changes polarization as it's reflected. So when waves propagate through, say, like foliage on a tree, that polarization goes from a pure polarization to it scatters and it changes polarization. So as it, as, as uh, electromagnetic waves travel through anything but a vacuum, when they hit materials, they start depolarizing and become random. And so I believe the sunlight is quite random in polarization. Yeah, it's just another component to it. And really the takeaway for people is to understand that these are very engineered waveforms. They're right. not really close to what we would naturally be programmed um, biologically to taking as an input from sunlight. And the pulse nature of it is is really, you know, a problem. I think probably the largest problem because these are pretty high-powered pulses. And from my understanding, really, the radio frequency before technology uh, that we would have been exposed to is pretty much zero um, in comparison. So how have you, well, maybe we get back to the home internet, right? Because that's something I've recently hardwired. And even with Wi-Fi ongoing in my house, uh, the way I think about it is you're still, say you even have a Wi-Fi network, but if you're hardwiring the laptop um, or the computer that you're using, even with an ongoing Wi-Fi network, it's a benefit because you're, you know, removing the transceiver receiver maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because distance is always you know the most important thing yeah so i'd say there's kind of it's kind of a three three major areas so if you still stay on wi-fi one of the biggest things is the separation distance electromagnetic fields decay really rapidly they they decay by the square of the distance so they decay exponentially so if you're really close to a transmitter, say your Wi-Fi router, say you sleep with it with a foot, a foot away from your head at bed, that's not good. But if you move that 15 feet away, you're talking about like 10,000, 50,000 X in reduction, reduction in that electric field. I just made those numbers up, but I would bet it's in a huge magnitude like that. So you're talking about just moving it 15 feet away, you're getting orders of magnitude reduction in that strength, which is a huge deal. So general rule number one, keep them away from you. Whatever biological structure it is, primarily yourself or your kids or your family, just keep them away. That's a huge start. That reduces the fill strength dramatically. The second approach is to just stop using the Wi-Fi altogether or your Bluetooth. Um, Wi-Fi is pretty easy because you can just get uh, a Cat5 or a Cat6 or Cat7, and you can remove that wireless connection. And they make all sorts of little adapter dongles that go to... Uh, USB-C to Lightning to just USB-A, all of them. You can get anything that converts an Ethernet to whatever you're using. Um, and that will remove all the wireless components and there's no transmitters anymore. Um, Bluetooth is different because you can't really hardwire Bluetooth devices, right? There's no like wired replacement. The idea is just get rid of them. Like you don't, you can just have a simpler life without all these Bluetooth devices. Bluetooth sucks anyways. I'm sure we've all had headache moments pairing Bluetooth devices. 
And if you want to go the extra mile, the third prong of this idea is you need to think about the currents. So there's currents that are generated on all these devices. Like your, say your laptop, you're sitting in your bed, it has a metal, metal chassis to it. And there's all sorts of electromagnetic components inside of it, sourcing fields, there's outside fields that are coupling to it. And so if you, even if you're hardwired and there's not a proper ground that goes all the way to earth, well, then you're a floating potential and you know, who knows what it does at that point. It raises your body voltage. It's, it's just not the full way. So to go the full way, you need to have a, a physical ground that goes from your chassis through your ethernet all the way to earth ground. And cat five will not work for this. Cat five is unshielded. It does not have any metallic barrier on the outside that shields the cable. To do this properly, you have to step into cat six or cat seven or higher. You'll, you'll notice when you look at the, the connecting end of an ethernet cable, if it's just plastic, that's cat five. Or it could be cat six or seven improperly connected. But if you find one that has ground around it, a metal connector, it's likely cat six or cat seven. And you just need to read the text on the wire and it'll tell you. But that's how you need to transfer ground is through a properly grounded ethernet such as cat six, cat seven. Yeah, that's uh, it's under discussed. I think it's a benefit regardless to hardwire because right, you're you're moving that transmitter and receiver from being like a foot away from you at all times to kind of just having whatever exposure, the average exposure that may be a lot further away, right? So it, the laptop itself, when it's on airplane mode, is not transmitting and receiving those, those RF signals, right? Right, correct. I, I believe airplane mode completely shuts. For a laptop, shuts down the Bluetooth and the Wi-Fi. Uh, I think there's more nuances to mobile devices that they're, even if you shut off data and Bluetooth, there still could be SMS transmitting. So airplane mode, I believe, kills even SMS. Yeah. To me, that was kind of realization. It's like, you know, if you have roommates or tenants or something, um, even if you have like a Wi-Fi network on, hardwiring your main technology is still going to be a benefit because then you're just eliminating that. And again, that's where you're spending all your time in close proximity. So for me, my phone's always on airplane mode too. I mean, it, even if you're at home, like if you have Wi-Fi and cellular data on at the same time, we measured it yesterday. It's an additive effect. You're getting blasted by 2.4 gigahertz and then whatever, you know, 800 megahertz, uh, gigahertz or exactly. whatever the frequency is. So when you're using your phone and you're at home, even if you haven't hardwired your internet yet, just keep it on airplane mode and only have the Wi-Fi on. And then if you need to keep the Wi-Fi on for some reason, just hardwire your your computer in and you're getting rid of those that transmitting and receiving signal quite a bit and then what i always say of course is is the sleep sleep sanctuary is is so massive for creating an ability for our body to to kind of repair and and restore but um you had an interesting case study as well where you replaced what the copper pipes or a piece of the copper pipes in your house with uh pecs to reduce the magnetic field exposure so right yeah, I, was, I was walking around so i i was first looking at the rf signals like things that come from our our personal devices but there's the electromagnetic spectrum is huge so rf exists a little higher in the frequency and below that you have elf blf hf a lot of low frequency so for instance your ac mains power that comes into your house is a 60 hertz alternating signal so the fact that it's traveling down a wire makes an, an antenna and so it will radiate, 
And so I was tinkering around with my little magnetic field tester in our room, and I realized there's like really high magnetic fields. Then I started following the wires. Our main main panel breaker went in the wall right next to where we slept, and it had a, I don't know, a dozen Romex wires in it that feed all sorts of things in our house and property. And that ground from the panel was connected right to the water pipe, copper water pipe coming into our property, which provides a really good ground. But somehow i'm not sure of the exact physics of what was happening because it's very complicated somehow these wires and this ground was exciting my whole copper system in my house and if you can just imagine so take away your house and leave your copper pipe standing and it, it comes up from the ground and it has these 90 degree elbows and it's like this fractal pattern it's like a, a little tree that stands up in your house if you take all the way all the walls and that's an antenna and so that thing was radiating and I could prove it because as I got my meter really close to it, it would increase the signal strength of the magnetic field, the nano Teslas. And as I pulled it away, it'd die off pretty quickly. But usually if those things are far away from you, they're not a big deal. But this one is pretty close to us. So what I did was I cut out the copper pipe from where it's coming in the house. And I put about a 15 foot section of PEX and just patch it in there. And it completely changed these readings. Like I saw... I think it was about a 10x reduction or something in several areas of concern. I think it was even more based on whatever you showed me yesterday. It was, more, it was yeah. like 20 to 30x. It's kind of a catch-22, folks, right? Because you'd probably rather use copper for like reducing plastic. But we live in this EMF-laden world that anything that's metal that is going to be able to hold on to charge, and especially if it could be ferromagnetic like steel or potentially copper, is, I mean... It's tough. And that's where the nuances come into play with things like grounding and grounding sheets. We won't dive deep into that, but there's really a number one recommendation for everyone that I give is you need to address your EMF environment first. Um, and then everything else can kind of make, fall in line after that because, you know, people even, you know, say don't use metal spoons and metal cups because that's all taking in that charge from the non-native EMFs and then you're putting that in your water and you're drinking the water or your tea or whatever you're mixing with. And that, you know, could change the, the frequency or just the, the energy that you're consuming. And, and maybe this gets a little woo-woo, but it's not well, because but, we know it's, it's science. But like you said, the spoon and those, these other things are like really secondary or tertiary yeah. uh, effects. You really want to focus on that. First, the primary thing is this EMF environment. Like, like the Wi-Fi, the Bluetooth, and like baby monitors and Wi-Fi cameras. And if you have kids, you really probably need to prioritize your kids before yourself. So like we have a sleep sanctuary where our kids go to bed and I've measured it and it's a, it's a very low EMF environment. It's not zero because you can't get it zero. We have neighbors. We have a cell tower half a mile away, um, but we prioritize our kids and you know, there's, like you said, they have more water content. They're smaller people. These uh, industry standard uh, SAR ratings are meant for like a bigger like dude, um, not for little tiny kids. And you know what? You love your children. Why not exercise the precautionary principle? Even if you don't know, why not exercise something safe so they don't end up being an experiment? Yeah, it's, it's spot on. Um... Let's get into the fun stuff now, which is really your area of expertise is like the technology of what's coming or what we have here with, with 5G and what may be to come, Starlink, vehicles. Talked about a lot in the past, you know, 
I don't know how long I've been here, 20 hours, but no, not even 12, 24 hours. But it's um, a big question I get. I've written about 5G, but you know a lot more than I do. Why is 5G so fundamentally different from an engineering perspective from 4G? And how is that, you know, warranting more concern from someone like yourself? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so up to, you know, first generations, up to 3G, 4G, those are all relatively the same kind of uh, base station build. So 4G essentially relies on pretty large cells, and these towers are pretty much single antennas. There's several up there, but they're the, the antenna itself is not an array. It is like a single antenna that kind of blasts out a broad beam of energy, and it kind of covers everything, it covers this whole uh, region within the cell. So it's, it's semi, it's directional, but it's, it's more omnidirectional than what 5G is getting into. So yeah, so 4G kind of blasts out a lot of energy everywhere. Stepping into 5G, this is when you get into phased arrays. So they have designed panels with, you know, a couple hundred little antennas on them that they all work in unison to steer a beam digitally without any moving parts. They use electronics. They use phase to feed each element with a different phase so it can be steered as musically up in elevation. As musically means side to side. Um, elevation is obvious up and down. And you can get a compound of those two. So they can steer this beam anywhere in the forward direction of this uh, phased array antenna. Now, with this comes much higher gain and I think much more uh, transmit power. And so that, and the frequency goes up. And we know, we've talked about that, there's about three different frequency bands in 5G. And really they've only been doing this low band. Um, and what did we say the low band was? Low, they've been doing mid band too, from my research, but low band is kind of the same as 4G, I think like 800 megahertz, maybe right. around a gigahertz. Mid band is like three to five gigahertz. And I think they're in that like three and a half gig range. So that, that is increasing the mid band usage. But I think for most people, it's probably still in, in low band today. Right. So with 5G, you have these much finer resolution of cells they have to install because they, to get this data rate, um, you have to put base stations much more frequently to provide you these high speeds. Um, so the disadvantage of now you have this much higher gain, higher power antenna beaming around all the time. But there is a hidden advantage that if you don't have any 5G devices connecting, that beam doesn't have a reason to steer towards your area. So that could be the benefit of it. But you know, if you're living in a highly populated, highly dense area, like a smart city, I don't think you can hide from it. I think even if those beams are pointed somewhere else, you're going to be close to them. And there's so many more of these stations. They're like microgrids. I mean, if you look now, how many cell towers do you see? I see like one, but with 5G, you're probably going to see them every couple blocks. Yeah, and you see that in the cities already, all these repeater towers um, kind of being installed. And to me, the concern is, yeah, when you get into like that, the beam forming, because as you said, it is the high, it's higher power. And even though it's like more targeted and it might be easily avoidable if, um, you know, you don't live in a city. And maybe here's a quick question. If you go and turn like 5G off in your cellular data settings, will that never really transmit to your phone then? Because you turned off the receiver. Obviously, it's on airplane mode and you're just using Wi-Fi. I'd imagine that's the case. But 
pretty much if you're eliminating the ability for it to to hit your phone, then you're kind of protected on a individual basis. Right. If you don't give it a receiving endpoint, then there's no reason this array is going to steer its beam to you. You know, but if you're a foot away from your friend who has it on, then that doesn't really do anything. But, you know, I'm just kind of making up numbers here. If you're 20 feet away, 50 feet away, you're probably good. So yeah, I, I would believe that if you disabled the 5G functionality via software on your phone, you should be much better off. But I would bet that doesn't guarantee you're not going to get little pulse signals here and there just doing some kind of communication. But I'd say generally speaking, that's the way to go. Is that also like, like what is the beam uh, angle of something from 5G? I don't know if we talked about that yesterday. Is it also like two degrees or something really, really low? Or is it probably a little bit wider? gut i don't know exactly because a lot of these kind of specs are kept secret by the manufacturers but i bet it's quite narrow definitely less than 10 degrees um yeah i'd probably say less than 10 degrees so i think that about it is like yeah like rob said it's like this thing is kind of just very targeted it's following you around via beam steering and then it's um it, it needs the receiver though to in order to do that so if you give that uh or if you turn that off and you don't give it uh, the opportunity to do that, you can easier avoid it. However, if you're like in downtown Denver here or downtown Austin or wherever, I mean, think of how many people have 5G enabled on, like you're just going to be, you know, blasted from every which way direction. And then it's higher power. Like how much higher power are we talking compared to like an omnidirectional, you know, 4G signal, do you think? Maybe estimate. This podcast is brought to you by our lead sponsor, EMR Tech. EMR Tech manufactures high-quality, high-powered red light therapy devices. In my opinion, red and infrared light are two of the biggest nutrient deficiencies in our modern society due to our indoor lifestyles. Red light therapy devices like the ones from EMR Tech can help combat that by providing high-powered red light while being indoors. I personally use mine every morning and every evening. Red and near-infrared light is extremely beneficial for energy production in our body because it boosts mitochondrial function and penetrates deep into the cell. It is also extremely beneficial for skin health, eye health, as well as our circadian rhythms. And this is actually pretty much why I bought everyone in my family an EMR Tech red light therapy device for Christmas. EMR Tech panels are low flicker, low EMF, and use targeted wavelengths such as 830 and 630 nanometers, amongst others, to get extremely effective results. For more information, go to emrtech.com and use our code DRADIO10 for 10% off your order. That's emrtek.com with our code DRADIO, D-R-A-D-I-O-10, to save at checkout. Well, so the the numbers we talk about as engineers is called EIRP. It's equivalent isotropic radiated power. And that takes into term the actual raw power that's being transmitted from the antenna. And then that also takes account for the gain. So the resultant power at a point in space is the summation of the antenna gain plus the power. So if you have two antennas that transmit one watt and one has 10 dB of gain and the other one has 1 dB of gain, there's a lot more power coming out the, the 10 dB gain antenna because the result in EIRIP is higher. So since the 5G antennas are much, much more highly directional and these, their beamless are much finer and they have many elements in the array, um, it's, it's many dB higher in received power. I don't know the exact transmit power of them, but it is far more than 14. 
And then imagine you have like, you know, you're at a football game or something and there's, you know, a thousand people around you. That's got to be like, you know, hundreds of times the exposure compared to just being in a like a 4G world. Oh, yeah. yeah. When you go to a big stadium, a lot of time you'll just look up there on the upper rim of the stadium and you'll see all these white panels. And those are all massive MIMO, like multiple input, multiple output uh, base stations. And that's there because they have to serve up tens of thousands of people in a little small area and they can do it. But back to like being in a city and you're, you have your 5G disabled, you don't know if there's someone, if you're between someone and the transmitter. So even if you have yours off, there could be someone like behind you in a wall that's using it and it, it, it kind of radiates right through you anyways. But the, the thing about 5G is it's highly susceptible to uh, physical things, physical objects in a vacuum. It's awesome. But once you introduce like city structures like trees and windows and other objects, the signal deteriorates very rapidly because of its high frequency. Yeah. And that gets into the millimeter wave component, the high band. So we're talking the high band band is the the millimeter wave area 5G. This is the one that, you know, kind of everyone was freaking out about for a long time. And the good thing is right now in 2024 here, we still, it's it's not used. I've never measured the high band. Yeah, Rob has a meter from Safe and Sound, and we tried it out yesterday, and it's picking up nothing. Maybe if I've heard they've tested pulses in downtown cities, it's it's going to take time, and um, that's like twenty to forty gigahertz, I think. Yeah, in that range. But yeah, maybe talk about the yeah the atmospheric losses, the engineering challenges with that a little bit more because it's almost like a catch twenty two. It's kind of funny, but I see it as again a good thing because like if you're not in the city you're really never going to have to worry about it too much. Right. And so first I want to explain to why we use high frequency is that so increasing frequency is proportional to data rate. So if you want more data for a given time, you need to go higher frequency because it's oscillating much faster. Uh, Like our cell phones running in the 900 megahertz range, they get pretty good, but they're lower data rate. And that's the pretty much the push to go to higher frequency like 5G And that is also proportional to the number of devices on that network. So there's so many more devices that are connecting that it's swamping out. You know, the 4G is not going to be able to handle it. So that is kind of the push to do this. But as Tristan was saying, there is a lot of atmospheric challenges and just challenges to rolling out 5G. You know, you have to have very precise antennas. These things are not simple. They're multi-layer PCBs with a lot of engineering into them. Um, They since they're at such high frequencies or when the, fi- when the higher bands roll out in the 20 to 40 gigahertz, those kind of signals degrade really rapidly. And if you just have a point-to-point link, yeah, I think you can get that 5G high-speed data for like, I think I read a block or something. But if you are, you know, between another human being or a tree or some kind of bush or other obstacles, it really degrades it fastly, fast and you're not going to get those high speeds. It's gonna, you're going to be probably pulled down to the 4G speeds. Um, and then distance, right? If you're outside like a couple blocks, you're going to already be down way below those advertised 5G speeds. That is why they have to put another base station the next block. And don't forget that these beams, they don't just point and then give you data. They're continuously steering. As you move, they're following you and steering everywhere you go continuously. And so they don't just point and shoot, they're continuous. Yeah, it's kind of scary. I feel like that's why they're trying to shepherd everyone into the city as well. And and that comes back to like the fiat economy and trying to prop all this up because it's a big, 
like telecom is investing big into millimeter waves and it's kind of like been a disappointment for so far i feel like i would have seen a bigger rollout in the high band by now but i've really seen anything so we have more time folks to get out of the cities and like become self-sovereign buy bitcoin and, and be able to build your homestead but it's coming for us and it's coming in a lot of which ways directions and not just with cell phone um one thing that we've talked about that Rob was was brilliant enough to do some calculations on is Starlink. And that's uh, one I, and I'll give you a little note sheet back here, is uh, I get a lot of questions about Starlink because, you know, it's, it's convenient for a lot of people with no internet, um, but just reading into it, you know, they're using higher frequency bands like KUKA. As, as you mentioned, you have experience with these bands. Um, there's just multifaceted, right? Like they're just, what, 10,000 plus satellites now in, in low earth orbit. That's a concern for a lot of people in general. And then um, my concern is just, you know, are we being irradiated with beams uh, that we're not consenting to? And um, yeah, let's talk about Starlink a little bit and what you have uncovered, what your thoughts are. Right. Um you mentioned that it's convenient, but I'd say that in a lot of cases, it's like life-changing. So the benefit of something like Starlink is you can go move out and get out of the city and you can connect to the internet and do all your things. You could have a, a remote job and be working out in the middle of nowhere where you couldn't have done that before. So it is a game changer for many people. Um, but yeah, so these constellations, these Starlight, uh, Starlink constellations, they're little shoebox size antennas. They're like literally the size of a shoebox. And there's tens of thousands of them. Where I think Starlink was aiming at 12,000. And they're not the only constellation. There's going to be more in the future. So you're going to have like 20, 30, 50,000 of these things in the near future zooming around 350 miles above the Earth's surface, which is considered low Earth orbit. Um, and that's about 60 times faster speeds than you get from a geosynchronous satellite that sits positioned in space. So that's way away from earth these are really close to earth even though it's 350 miles that's still considered very close um but yeah they have a phased array antenna on them and the the receiver on the base station on the ground also has a phased array and so they communicate via very narrow beams little pencil beams they're not uh indiscriminately blasting radiation out everywhere they have to be very precise just like 5g how they steer these beams and track it continuously across the sky um, I think a, a Starlink satellite, you stay connected to it for something like five minutes as it moves through the sky. And then another one comes over and you hit that one and you keep reconnecting and that's seamless and you just keep reconnecting. Um, but these are, this is done through phased array technology, just like, uh, 5G antennas. Um, so I was doing some, some rough order of magnitude calculations, right? These are ROM calculations. These are just ballpark. I, if you really want real numbers and you want to consider all the details of space and the atmosphere, these calculations get really complicated and, you know, you get tied up in the details. So these are just rough order numbers. So for a low Earth orbit Starlink satellite hovering about 340, 350 miles above the Earth's surface, I couldn't find what the beam width of these transmitters are. I don't think they release this information publicly. But from my design experience in my career, I would guess about two degree beam width. And when you talk about beam width, that means it's from the center of the beam halfway down until you lose half the power on the edge of the beam. So it's called the uh, 3dB half power beam width. 
And so it's, I'm going to guess it's two degrees. For my calculation, I did one degree. So that's even better. So if you have a Starlink satellite transmitting a one degree beam from 350 miles up above the Earth's surface, that will create approximately a 70 mile uh, diameter circle on the Earth's surface to where that beam is illuminating. So it's not just illuminating your Starlink receiver, you're illuminating a 70 mile rate or a 70 mile diameter around you. Um, another calculation I did was to get that to 10, 10 mile diameter, you'd have to have a 0.01 degree beam, which they're not doing that. I would say at the best scenario, it's a one degree beam, but probably two degree beam. So if you move up to two degree beams, you're talking about like over a hundred mile diameter in, in radius or hundred mile diameter circle. Now, I just, I don't know what the transmitting power of the Starlinks are, but I had a pretty good estimate through some research and I picked hundred watts of transmit power. So hundred watts of transmit power at a one degree beam width results in a 0.01 microwatt per meter squared uh, density in that 70 mile diameter. So 0.01 microwatts per meter squared. Now that number doesn't mean anything unless you compare it to something else. So I went and found, uh, I looked at my home router and my, my old Wi-Fi system and I did some calculations and I came up with that where I was at in my house, I estimated about my Wi-Fi produced about 100 microwatts per meter squared. So now you're talking about 10,000 times lower from 100 to 0.01. So that's a lot of talk. What that means is that while the Starlink satellite is illuminating, illuminating a huge area on the ground, um, your neighbors and everything else in there, the overall power density is quite minimal compared to what your Wi-Fi does. So my gut feeling would be that the, and this is for one beam pointing down. Um, my gut feeling would, would be that the Starlink satellite, the density coming down from space is not the biggest deal. Um, but now if you have 100 people in this small grid, you have a lot more power. So that amps it up quite a bit. So it is like an additive effect, you think, then if, yeah, because 70 to, I mean, 100 miles, let's say, that's a big area. And I could bet you for sure there's, even in Wyoming, there's 100 people using Starlink in a 100-mile radius. Maybe if it gets, you know, more popular, it could even be 1,000. So that is additive then? It is, because microwatts per meter doesn't specify a, a frequency. That is just the culmination of all power in that whole spectral area summed up. So yeah, it doesn't, even if it's at a different frequency or polarization, yeah, it's, it's all additive. So would that be then spread out over the hundred miles or would that be like in any given point in for every meter squared yeah okay so that's already that's meter. already taking the this the area into account okay right so i'm stupid but well you could sense. also convert it to volume <laughs> if you wanted but power density is specified in area um but point being is your your starlink receiver receives from space you don't need to worry about the the transmitting from earth to space because that's just blasting a beam straight out into space. I mean, it's relatively safe, I guess, unless you're in an aircraft flying by and no one's going to get hit. But the bigger deal is that your Starlink receiver then immediately converts that receive KU band signal into a Wi-Fi signal. And so now you're sitting here and your main concern then is the Wi-Fi again. So it's kind of the same issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, we talked about this yesterday. I think it's like, it's an inconvenient fact, but to me, I'm still concerned that it's like, it's just against people's will. It's like, you know, say 
maybe we did figure out some way to get like hardwired fiber point to point um, internet in a homestead, like off the grid area. But then there's a hundred people who have, um, Starlink within a hundred miles of us. That's like, you know, unfortunate repercussion of just like what we have to deal with. And now I know there, that's just Starlink, right? Like you mentioned these other satellite mesh networks are going to be formed. Like this is just maybe one of like a handful. So then that's a multiplier effect. And, um, yeah, I know Elon wants to just keep it going. So right, I, and it's you know satellites aren't new. They're, these are just low Earth Earth orbit satellites. So we've had geosynchronous satellites that shoot down satellite TV since since I was a kid, since I remember. So those satellites have been here the whole time, and those are indiscriminately just blasting the whole side of the Earth with that signal. Are you looking to get the benefits of grounding and earthing, but really just can't be barefoot all the time? Yes, you know what I'm talking about, right? Absorbing free electrons from the earth, improving your circadian rhythm and blood flow and vitality and redox. And that is why I'm excited that this show is brought to you by Rizal Shoes. Rizal Shoes are, in my awareness, the only non-sandal grounded shoes. They have slip-ons and they have cool boots as well with laces that are not only grounded via a copper plug, but have leather outsoles made with water buffalo hide. So they're all natural, they are grounded, and they're barefoot and minimalist with a wide toe box. This is imperative for foot health, and it's really going to keep you connected in a modern lifestyle setting so you don't have to walk around barefoot all the time. I love them in the wintertime. I can wear socks with my slip-ons and not be freezing cold trying to be grounding. You need to check them out, folks. Rizal Shoes. R-H-I-Z-A-L dot C-O. Rizal dot co is their website. Use code D-Radio at checkout for 10% off and get your shoes, get grounded, get connected, and improve your health. What frequency are those? Using? I don't know what they're at. I forgot. But to look the distance up. is much greater. So you have... Uh, so that. that's dissipating. Or it that's, is. Yeah. But here's the, here's the kicker is I don't know how much of that's in a vacuum, right? When you're that far away from Earth, some of it's in a vacuum. When electromagnetic wave travels in a vacuum, it travels unimpeded. It's only impeded when there's atoms and molecules in the volume. It's kind of the opposite of sound. Sound travels unimpeded through a super dense structure. But you don't get sound propagation when there's nothing in the air. Right? If you, you, there's no sound in a vacuum. So sound and electromagnetic waves are opposite like that. That's fascinating. Uh, it's just like an unfortunate reality. I think Starlink maybe not as bad as people think from like the total exposure perspective. Again, your Wi-Fi at home, like Rob mentioned. Um, and again, Wi-Fi is typically at 2.4 gigahertz, but it's moving to 5 gigahertz, which you could argue maybe, again, you're getting the higher frequency, you're getting more disruption from physical barriers. So you could argue it might even be a better thing, but that's where the, the hard wiring. So could you hardwire from a Starlink um, connection is that I don't know I didn't consider that until you brought it up but I would really hope you can ditch the Wi-Fi component and just have a an Ethernet output that'd be a shame if they didn't get I'd it. imagine you could right I mean it's probably still a router and then you could probably yeah. just plug it in so maybe there's a, a way to be a software disable that Wi-Fi connection and then you can just do regular you know switches and Ethernet so that might be the best solution for folks looking to like escape the city, build their own houses. Yeah, potentially Starlink with hardwired or um, what are we saying? The point to point system that uh, you can also get point to point Internet systems where you use a very narrow beam with dish that they communicate point to point. 
Um, I don't think they're, you can't get them everywhere like Starlink. That's the advantage of Starlink. You don't have to have all this existing ground infrastructure. You just pop up a piece of infrastructure and you get it from the sky. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And the last part about maybe the higher frequency waves that we were talking about is kind of getting into the, the vehicle space, the cars, or just like other stuff that's coming um, with millimeter waves. And I was telling you how I know my Forerunner has a millimeter wave sensor that's 77 gigahertz. But um, I stopped using the cruise control because uh, I was just like, I don't know what's going on here. I figured it was kind of shooting out mostly in front of me. But you kind of brought up a good point saying that you don't need to worry about your car. You should really be worrying about the other cars. Right. Because, I mean, imagine yourself in the driver's seat, your passenger, in, a person in the vehicle, that front facing radar is designed so that it's not pushing energy at the back end towards the driver. It is designed as an array antenna to push that energy forward to scatter off whatever's in front of you. So now you find yourself in a position where when you are doing that you're kind of illuminating the person's back back of their head in front of you yeah but because it is millimeter waves 77 gigahertz like 100 yards away or 50 yards away might not be very high power density at that point but right and there's when you start adding up all these smaller density sources you wind up with a big soup bowl yeah to me that's always the concern right it's like everyone's like oh it's so low power it doesn't penetrate our biology which is true for the electric field component maybe not the magnetic field component and there are proven effects of millimeter waves dr martin powell has a really nice review on that and um, but they refuse to study this stuff because they know it's just like we're just going to keep it coming and i've read articles saying they want to point a millimeter wave sensor back at the driver to biometrics. to measure your vitals yeah. biometrics for that's, the safety of others that's so that's where it becomes a major concern to me is like they're kind of like you know they're wiggling their way into the into the room, you know, they're inching forward, saying it's so low power, it doesn't matter. But then all of a sudden, you have a hundred to a thousand sources of low power. Well, they're not very low power anymore. And then they want to beam them directly at your heart. I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, there's so many sources, even past cars. I mean, have you ever heard of in-flight wireless uh, internet? How the heck do you think they get internet in airplanes? They blast the plane. Yeah, like, there's so one I'm company, one of the biggest companies in the United States, GoGo, has about I think 200 ground stations that are scattered across the United States. These are high power transmitters that blast from the Earth up. So most of that energy density is going up away from the Earth. But antennas have side lobes, and when they're steering close to the ground, they can reflect off things. It's just a summation of all these little sources. Yeah, and the plane is really bad because then, I mean, you're completely in a, a metal tube as well. And right. you're just getting, I mean, it's at the back of your head now, the TVs and, and the Wi-Fi receivers. So people wonder why they get so dehydrated on, on long-haul flights. And they, I mean, that's like mitochondrial dysfunction 101. And it's only getting worse. Like, I mean, I don't even want to go on a plane anymore, but it's just like you can't even you can't even avoid these things. So... You know, how do we in 6G, we could talk about just pushing it higher and higher, which is kind of a trade off again, because they're just going to run into more and more atmospheric losses, right? Yeah, the problem, the engineering just goes up and up, you know, because as you go into higher and higher frequencies, all your components become smaller and smaller and smaller. Like things are getting very small. You're talking about little, you know, microscopic integrated circuits, your little 
traces matter, that uh, the, any impurities in materials add up, all these engineering challenges become es uh, escalated. But I want to point it out, I had a thought. Um, now, you don't need just a dedicated antenna to have an EMF exposure. So there's sources, like Christian is pointing out, this TV in an airplane that is behind your head. It doesn't have an antenna on it, probably, but it has other electronics that switch back and forth and create electromagnetic propagation. So you, electromagnetic waves can be sourced from more than just like an antenna or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. They come from the actual power supply switching of these devices. Yeah, and that's to me, working in semiconductors, I realized that. I mean, just the amount, every, everything, you take one PCB, the amount of switching transistors, the amount of LEDs, the amount of like just pulse width modulation on like a single circuit board is astronomical. And that's in literally everything we use. And that's not even in, that's like a lot of that's in the kilohertz range, which people don't even measure that very often with a, a meter. So we're basically being exposed to the entire EMR spectrum now with, with non-native sources. But Bitcoin miners are good to sleep next to in your bed, right? Yeah, man, we need it. We'll, we'll attack that. But maybe we finish off. It's like, how do we build a future? And this is in line with Bitcoin, right? Like, how do we build? Like, what's the ideal future look like to where we can use Internet, we can use technology, but it's in a more, you know, symbiotic way with our biology, how it's meant to function. And we've thrown back some ideas. So this is like totally open ended. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you have a blank piece of paper, you have a hundred acres building your own house. Like, what are you doing? And then how do we do this for more than just like one family? Right. So, you know, an individual or a family can move out. They start from a blank sheet. You know, you start with the way your electrical systems laid out in your house. You, you cleverly, cleverly design your breakers so that there's a dedicated circuit breaker to your bedroom. There's one to your kids' rooms. There's dedicated breakers everywhere that if you want to, you, they can be switched off at night, which is probably a good principle going forward. And that, you know, that also ties hand in hand with uh, EMF, like blue light. That's just a higher frequency of EMF. It's all EMF in the end. Um, and then you get into like shielding those conductors in your wall. You want to put them through conduit and ground those pipes. Uh, that's probably the safest way to do this. And then you're kind of left with like your water system. And I think I would choose PEX learning what I learned in my house, but I'm not sure I'd necessarily drink the PEX water. I'd probably have some other filtration system, but I'd have to do more research to see if those kind of plastic contaminations get removed from like reverse osmosis. I don't know if they do. Um, yeah, and I would definitely design my whole house without uh, Wi-Fi. I would have Ethernet jacks everywhere. I'd have it all grounded. I would run Ethernet out to any auxiliary building where I needed. Um, I, I still have a cell phone. I wouldn't, we don't need to go back to like cavemen to, to do this. There's always a balance. Um, but I don't know how the general population is going to move forward with this. I mean, the, the real answer is it's a tough answer. And the answer is probably we need to go to a wired future. Now that's going to not really work for the general population. So honestly, what I see happening is they're just getting way, way worse and people getting sicker and sicker and sicker. But we'll adapt, right? You know, like biology yeah. will just figure it out. We'll figure it all out. It's yeah. non-thermal. It's yeah, not ionizing. Right. You know, it's just giving us a nice, cozy, uh, you know, home to live in, right? 
it's uh it's scary man and it's it's like yeah we don't know i mean i think we need to engineer better you know technology for the first part is you know there are simple things everything that rob just said um you know hardwiring you know putting distance between you and your technology these things don't cost a lot of money um and they work and if we do that if you shield the electrical in your house or you know get crazy and maybe make a DC off-grid home, at least to the the endpoints of, you know, half of your units, you can remove like, I don't know, 80 to 95% of exposure right there. Right. DC lighting is a really interesting idea. Yeah. I would really consider it based upon what I know about lighting. Yeah. DC lighting and then DC control. So we're not getting pulse, you know, flicker to just destroy our retinas. And then while I was kind of pessimistic on the future of Wi-Fi, I think screens are a different deal. I think there is definitely some hope in screens that aren't like blasting non-native spectrum in your face all day. Yeah. And that's why, yeah, I started, you know, working with the daylight computer. I'm stoked. It's like, we can engineer these solutions. I mean, Rob and I sitting here the past day, have just thought of like 10 great ideas, but you know, nobody's going to give us money to do these things unless they prioritize, you know, health. And eventually it's going to get so bad. We're already starting to see this transition, but Eventually, it's going to get so bad, and it's it's obvious, right? I mean, the the studies are out there. You should be warranting caution, but it just goes against the major thing. Probably the big. I mean, our, we we have a tech economy, right? So it's the biggest stool or the biggest leg of the stool in our fiat economy. So it's like if Absolutely. we take that out, the dollar is is broken, which gets into Bitcoin. You know, the Bitcoin mining. You know how this is kind of a conundrum, right? Because Bitcoin is a very, you know, native to the internet. I mean, miners are EMF, you know, monsters. monsters. <laughs> how do you, how do you think about this from like having Bitcoin, being a Bitcoin maximalist, but also wanting to have a connected to nature lifestyle. And it, it kind of, it's a challenge. And I, I think about it often. Yeah. It's an interesting dichotomy, I guess. Um, in terms of Bitcoin mining, I don't think miners should be anywhere near humans when they're running. They need to be in isolated environments. I mean, you kind of be a fool to be sleeping around a bunch of Bitcoin miners. They're just like, like we said, EMF monsters. They're producing all sorts of spectrum. Um, living in harmony with Bitcoin like that is a tough one because you need, but like I said earlier, we're not proposing going back to caveman stuff. I'm proposing really removing a lot of these wireless connections. But what we're faced with is just like people are addicted to sugar and they can't give it up or addicted to porn or whatever it is, they're addicted to Wi-Fi. They're addicted to instant connectivity right at their fingertips. And maybe we need to let a little bit of that go and like have a little hassle getting on the internet through a wire. That leads to a lot of other perks. Yeah, I mean, we're so enthralled. It's not even funny. Um, You could shield the miners as well, right? Like pretty, pretty well, I'd imagine. Yeah, you just need to get that airflow in and out. Yeah, Something yeah, would work really good for a miner. Faraday cage would be a good idea for a miner. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's not inconceivable, right? Like, there's solutions. We're all very smart. It's just nobody's thinking about it because, like we said in the beginning here, all the engineers are they don't consider the biological effects, no, none of them. and none of the people that are worried about the health effects have any background in engineering. So they're just telling everyone to buy pendants and harmonizers, and maybe we. Maybe we talk about that really quick, Rob. Can we buy a harmonizer to uh, block all the EMF from everyday living? It should be that easy, right? Artificial blue light from technology is destroying our health. 
It disrupts melatonin production, sleep quality, and our circadian rhythms, which has been linked to pretty much all chronic disease. It also rewires our dopamine reward system, which makes it addictive by design. That is why I'm so thankful to have found the Daylight Computer, the first company in the world making a computer that has a blue light free screen. They use paper reflective screen technology, so it's blue light free, flicker free, eye strain free, and is easily used outdoors so you can use technology while getting the benefits of full spectrum sunlight. For more information, you can listen to our recent podcast with the founder of Daylight Computer, Anjan, on his incredibly inspiring story on why he wants to bring technology to the masses that is not detrimental to our health. You can go to buy.daylightcomputer.com slash dradio to pre-order the Daylight tablet today and begin using your technology in a fashion that's way more in line with our biology and nature. Absolutely not. Like any little tiny device that you can put on your body or wear that claims it blocks EMFs or creates some like halo around you. And then my favorite is when they also advertise that it doesn't impede your cell signal. Why Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and cellular service work fine in it? No, they're, I mean, I don't have any scientific uh, experimental data to stand on for these specific devices. But I have a career of electromagnetic engineering, and I would tell you that if there was a device that could do that, it would be heavily implemented in the military. And we would have, I would have known about it. There's no device that could do that. Uh, military is all about, I mean, the future of warfare, as you mentioned to me, is all electromagnetic, right? Like jamming signals, getting kind of the upper hand on the spectrum. Right. Whoever controls the electromagnetic spectrum essentially dominates the warfront and that's going to get more true into the future that's what's scary to me because that's what's driving like 6g and everything forward and i've read those like you know 50 page documents on the future of warfare we've already seen the active denial systems which is 95 gigahertz gigahertz beam being used on crowds in in australia for covid they can physically move you they can make you feel like your skin's on fire but guys this is non-ionizing radiation so it's uh, it's completely harmless Perfectly safe. It's scary because then it's like, yeah, it's for military use, but then all of a sudden the military turns on civilians because, you know, they're revolting and trying to buy Bitcoin. You know, that's a scary, scary future potentially. It is. And back to the harmless thing, it's it's kind of it's hard to prove it has an effect because, you know, you can sit here for throughout one day and you can use a ton of Wi-Fi and be around all these signals for short term and nothing happened to you that day, right? But it's like smoking a cigarette or something. I mean, maybe that's a bad analogy, but you can smoke a cigarette once and there'll be no health effects of it. You might have a sore throat or something, but if you continue your whole life, that's where this this long-term exposure is the concern. Yeah, the duration is tremendously important and the research shows that as well. And that's why the sleep sanctuary, I think, is imperative because if you can take a break, it's unavoidable. Yeah, Yeah, well, it's unavoidable, right? Like it's (laughs) even in your room, like in your kitchen, you're like, wow, you know, I would love to get it 10x lower. And, and you've a lot of things. You've done almost everything. I'm the same way. I My breaker to my bedroom is off. But yeah, the sleep sanctuary to me is the biggest thing because that's when we're repairing and restoring the day's damage. We're going through autophagy, apoptosis, and we know that EMFs can alter that, um, alter mitochondrial function. And if we don't have that, Wi-Fi disrupts melatonin, um, blue light, of course, as well, which is another EMF. So that's, to me, the number one thing is if you can prioritize your bedroom and your sleep sanctuary, like you're at least giving yourself a fighting chance. Right. Whereas, time. yeah, you're going to be degraded. And a lot of the studies show that once you get like chronic exposure levels, which 
can be like above 24 and 48 hours, that's when the biological effects really start to take place um, at low power densities. Because yeah, it's just like this persistent exposure. And some people probably go like, you know, 10 years without a break in exposure. I mean, that's why I love going to the mountains and having nothing. And I can take out my reader and like, there's nothing there in the, right. and I don't want Elon Musk. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, whatever, 0.1 microwatts per meter squared. Like, I don't, I don't yeah, want anything like where it's inescapable, but that's why the goal is not perfection. Perfection is impossible. People, right. um, Rob and I have tried, but it's not possible. <laughs> and, uh, maybe we're going to try a little harder, a, big a nice balance. But yeah, so how do we get more Bitcoiners? Because Bitcoiners are going to be the one who fund this in the future. This is how I think about it. Bitcoiners, we're going to have the money. We're going to want to fund the research that actually matters. And that's going to be about using technology wiser, electromagnetic fields, water, you know, sunlight, things that nobody's funding in the centralized world. How do we kind of bring them over? And um, have you, you know thought about that at all because it's one of my biggest challenges yeah, and I mean, it's easy to overwhelm people you know they might be on board with the food a lot of the bitcoiners a lot of people are like all right i cut out the seed oils i'm eating red meat i'm getting outside more there's like almost a progression and then it's like oh emf's like oh you're telling me to unplug my wi-fi and stop using Air airpods are giving me brain cancer i'm like and then they you lose them you lose them yeah i mean guess for what am I, what I've experienced through Bitcoin is to really understand Bitcoin right, which in my opinion, there's very few people who do. You need to have a multidisciplinary approach to it. You need to come from many different angles to understand every aspect of it. Um, you know, a lot of our knowledge is siloed, like you were talking about earlier, between like the engineers don't understand the biology and the biologists don't understand the engineering. And I understand that because I don't really understand the biology fully. I know a lot more now, but when I was an engineer, I didn't really consider the biology and if you talk to anyone they just dismiss you so i think for me it would be having the the research and the data easily digestible there needs to be and incredible there needs to be some way to understand that it's credible and it has been a repeatable data set with enough statistical uh numbers um because that's what i saw i saw some of the data and i started believing it so yeah, I, I don't know. You need to somehow educate the Bitcoiners about this biological effect because they're prime for it. Bitcoin opens you up to start thinking about all these things. Yeah, I mean, you should have the mindset of question everything, like everything. everything. And, and don't believe me. It's just, hey, consider this perspective. Like, consider that maybe big tech doesn't have your best interest in mind, that technology is made to be addictive, and they could engineer better solutions, but why bother? Well, and here's the deal. You can get on Google and go research what we're talking about, and you'll learn that we're full of shit, right? Google will tell on you that. On Google, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll learn that we're just, that we don't know what we're talking about, and that it's not even a concern. But the funny thing is if the same person goes and researches about the money system, they'll learn that Bitcoin is like dead and stupid, but they don't believe that. They know Bitcoin is it. So I don't really know how to, I think, that gap. yeah, I think it's just slow progression. Again, you can't, like you said in the beginning, what did you have a very hard time doing? Convincing people to buy Bitcoin. You almost have to come to it like on your own. And then when you're ready for the orange pilling, when you're ready for the EMF pill, you will be ready. But there's like steps that need to happen. And I think COVID accelerated a lot of things. Bitcoin's accelerating a lot of things. But the EMF one, it's tough. And same with the light, like light, 
which is EMF. It is the main input signal to our biology. Our biology is electromagnetic. Like this is undebatable at this point. And um, it's cool as two engineers to have discovered this. And now you just, it makes sense, right? Like that's what we're hardwired to do. do. And um, yeah, so I think any Bitcoiners listening, most people in this podcast are probably health, health listeners that are trying to get more into Bitcoin, but still. Any Bitcoiners listening, just consider the perspective. And, you know, that's one of my main missions as well. Something I've realized in since COVID was you talk to people and they don't have that much confidence in their medical doctor. They go to the doctor and the doctor gives them advice and they're like, I don't know if I really trust it. I've heard that so much. And maybe that's what it's going to take. Maybe it's going to take people doing like basic health research on their own to wake up from this and seeing that the big system doesn't really care about your health. Right? It's there for profit. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks are already doing that. It's just like right. EMFs is like, again, it's like an advanced, it's like, you it's got like the tip of the pyramid. It's like, health. it's like the last like little crown of the tinfoil hat you get. Um, it's like expert, <laughs> expert mode pretty much. We're advanced, yeah. you know, conspiracy <laughs> theorists here, oh, yeah. but you also have just a crazy depth of knowledge on about Bitcoin as well. Being an OG, being an engineer, diving deep into the technical aspects. What are like, what are your biggest concerns about the network? What are things you would like to see really like advance? Like, are you bullish on lightning network? Like how, how do you assess the state of affairs currently and like where we need to get to in maybe the next five, 10 years, because ETFs approved, things are accelerating. I mean, you know, we could talk about if that's good or bad, but I'm curious as an engineer, as someone who's very technical, the network itself, you know, fees are high. What are your concerns? What do you think needs to happen really for this to keep proliferating in the coming decade? Yeah, um, and there's a lot of different thoughts around there and a lot of different camps and arguments. Uh, I guess one of the biggest issues I see, and it's probably the most obvious one, is the on-ramp, off-ramp privacy of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin itself is pseudonymous. You're, you're transacting with these alphanumeric numbers and if you don't have any other data, it's anonymous, right? Unless you are linked to that address. And so when you buy Bitcoin from Coinbase, you're linked right there. Then you can be tracked with everything you do. And if you're perfectly uh, private and you go sell your Bitcoin and off-ramp, then you're linked throughout your past. So yeah, privacy is a concern because of the leadership of the world. It's a leadership of the world. It wasn't so authoritarian and what control freaks and all these things. We wouldn't have to worry about it so much. Um, so yeah, I think that's something that has to be solved. And, you know, Lightning was supposed to come around and do that. And I just don't think Lightning adoption has been as much. Maybe we're just too early in that. I feel like it's too early all the time in Bitcoin. It's it's really amazing to me how slow the progression of uh, of people adopting Bitcoin is. Um, but, and also people think that they're so addicted to their, like, a new iPhone coming out or the new car. Like I want the iPhone 13 then the 14 and the 15. I don't want a money system like that. I don't want a money system that is continuously being upgraded. I want something that was finished. The way I look at Bitcoin, it was pretty much a finished product when it launched. It needed some work. There's obviously some things that need to be fixed and upgraded, but I look at Bitcoin as a finished product. It is what it is. I don't want it to be upgraded because that doesn't make it sound over time. If you can just keep upgrading it and doing things, then what's the point? You don't know what the future holds. But I do think 
I'm not technical enough to give accurate recommendations on like an on-chain uh, block size increase. Like how much, how many more megabytes until you you cross that chasm to more centralization, or that you know there's like layer three privacy methods and. You know, a lot of people have already given up on Bitcoin and have moved to like Monero and other things like that. And I, you know, I, I, I'm a Bitcoiner and I think it's going to work out in the end. Um, in terms of privacy, it is an issue. Um, but, you know, when I transact Bitcoin and buy it or sell it, I like to do it with individuals. I don't go to centralized exchanges unless I have to. Um, but yeah, I think that that is a solution is to just be peer-to-peer with actually real people the way it was intended the problem is people go on coinbase and they buy a bitcoin no you don't you don't buy a bitcoin you buy a digit on their database the only time you actually interact with bitcoin on coinbase is when you withdraw it then you just interacted with the network so up until then you know all these bitcoin users on coinbase they're not bitcoiners they're just buying a digit and we know from the legacy banking system that they're just going to inflate those numbers and who knows if they have the same reserves as what they sold. Yeah, very valid, I think, across the board. Um, I kind of came to the conclusion as well recently that it's like, there's only going to be a small percentage of people who actually use the Bitcoin network peer-to-peer, who actually self-custody and actually do all the things that is quote-unquote intended for. And everyone else is going to be, you know, have their, yeah, they're going to be on paper, Bitcoiners, but not Bitcoiners, uh, right. whether that's through the ETF or they're just holding on exchange or wherever. And that's just the reality of, I think 95% of people just aren't willing to put in the proof of work for their money or their health uh, for anything. And that's all right. Exactly. But my only concern is that that becomes a, a regulation legislation issue. And then they attack us for, you know, self-custodying and what have you. But, you know, we can be optimistic and just do things the best we can. And, and that's, uh, you know, owning Bitcoin in any form is probably better than nothing because at least you're hedging against the deflating dollar or right. the, the inflating devaluing dollar. But yeah, people are just lazy, man. And I think um, COVID really blasted that in my face, like how lazy and how people just listen to authority. That's the difference in me. I never listened to authority. I jumped to my, I educated myself about my own solutions. I never listened to authority. I never liked being told what to do. And I think that is the fundamental pillar of how I got so into Bitcoin and how I'm into health and all these things. I don't, when I hear official sources telling me something, that makes me question it more because we know how like, just how full of shit they are. They're liars. They lie and manipulate you to get what they want out of you. You know, so I wasn't, the reason I'm not an engineer anymore, well, I can call me an engineer or not, but I, I'm not employed right now is because I didn't want to get the COVID vaccine. I was working at home, 100% in my office here, but Biden's emergency mandate required that even military defense contractors who even he put in there, work at home, have to be fully vaccinated. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. I, at that point, understood that the, the vaccine didn't stop transmissibility. So I looked at the situation. I said, why would I be a threat to anyone else? if I am just as transmissible as anyone else, you know, and I did a bunch of like logical, simple thoughts and it's very simple for me to say no to it. I don't need it gone. And I stood up to my guns there and I got terminated. 
a lot of people have a similar story and I definitely don't like being told what to do either. Thank you to my lovely mother for giving me that trait, but it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, like people just roll over once it becomes inconvenient. But the way I found is a lot of people also just got shoved into a corner as well. And they kind of just, you know, financially, like, right. I mean, they didn't have it, so, you know, the only, maybe a good reason you're able to do that was because of Bitcoin. Right. Probably, um, yeah. And like, it's for me, it definitely is the same thing. Like if I didn't have Bitcoin, um, I wouldn't be able to confidently leave the engineering world and, you know, right. a decent salary. So we need opt outs. We need alternatives. We have one in money. We have Bitcoin. And again, people listening to this show, they're amazing. They're probably going to be part of that 5% who are going to do their due diligence, going to want to self-custody and do all the right things. Um, we have, you know, now an increased opt out from, you know, the food health perspective. And we're going to get right into Alpha Bar now is uh but we need more from like technology and we need just kind of alternatives everywhere we need to create an entirely different system that's outside of centralized control for sure and like just kind of circling back i had other coworkers that didn't want to get vaccinated you know they had the same kind of few of them i'll just say a couple of them out of the 150 people most people immediately bent over and just did it but the couple that stood up with me they had you know money they had to bring home to support their whole family and they dangled their salary above their head and they just they couldn't do it they couldn't put their family at risk so the smartest solution for them was getting it and that's what they did but there's other people i know some people who were like yeah i got vaccinated so i could go on a trip to costa rica I'm like dude that is the weakest thing ever that's how they get you and a lot of people did that they did it to take the easy way a lot of people want the easy route, Rob. That's uh, program. It is programmed into our biology, right? I mean, it's it kind of hard to overcome it, but it um, we are dumb monkeys at the start of it. And, you know, that's why we'll fall for sugar and blue light screens because our biology is innately addicted. But we're in this, you know, overconsumption every day. And uh, yeah, it's wild. So getting to the health rabbit hole, how did you, you know, what made you want to start a company that kind of offered a solution, offered a better alternative because the Alba bar to me is incredible. Like I'm active, I'm in the outdoors all the time, all the bars on the shelf and like whole foods, natural grocers, like most of them are shit. The jerky is really expensive, not high calorie enough and, you know, questionable quality a lot of the time. So I love the Alba bar. I use it all the time. And, um, how did that journey start? Right. So I guess the blessing in disguise is I, I lost my engineering job in about 2022 and I kind of hang, I have two young kids. So I, I hung around for about a year here. Oh, I'm still here, but I just primarily focus on hanging out with my kids and raising them. But I wanted to be someone who they can look up to. I don't want to just be a lazy bum all the time. I and mean, I work my ass off on this property, but I wanted, we wanted something to put our work into. At the same time, we were going on road trips. And after this whole COVID vaccine thing, you know, we became very health focused. Like we started falling down this food rabbit hole and it, it didn't just happen then, you know, before that we just realized there's just shit load and everything. Um, there's so many products that are just fiat sludge, just industrial sludge. And we were on a, there's this very specific time we were on a road trip and we literally went gas station to store to gas station. And I came out empty handed every time because I went in to find this ideal snack and you can't find it. The only thing I ever found was a bag of cashews. And they didn't have seed oils on it. I was shocked. But almost every other nut or anything is, you find something, you look at it and there's uh, soybean oil on it or canola oil or 
um, a number of the, whatever other oil there is, we just got sick of it. And then we were home one day after this trip and kind of defeated from that. And we were reading a book about Native Americans and stuff. And my wife brought up pemmican. I was like, what the hell's pemmican? And I started looking into it and I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing stuff that we have lost in our culture. And we just made it for ourselves. We didn't really think about the business. We were just making it for ourselves. And we, what we realized is that when we made traditional pemmican, like our kids didn't like it. It was harder to eat. It's not, it doesn't excite your flavor palate like other foods do. And so it's kind of like a survival food. It's almost. a survival food. And that's what the early explorers did. They lived off it, but they didn't have other options. So we kind of went out and we're like, let's make pemmican great again. And so we took that recipe and, you know, we added some dehydrated fruit and some butter and some honey to it. And our intention was to only add an ingredient that can be sourced from a typical farm, right? A typical farm can source all those ingredients. And that was our, our ingredient list. Um, and we made them for a little while and we had a couple of people tell us that we should sell these because they've never seen anything like it. And I thought about it for a while and I was like, man, Bitcoiners would love this kind of bar. We could start you know, marketing to Bitcoiners. And I think we'd be doing them a service and it'd be a great product. And that's what we did. We went all in on it. We built our, our kitchen right here behind us. This is the Alpha Bar kitchen. Um, the start of it, we plan to get bigger. And we source from what we call some of the best beef in Colorado. We don't get feedlot beef. It's all regenerative grass-fed beef. Um, so one of our ranchers even takes Bitcoin as payment. We incentivize Bitcoin sales. We give discounts. We want to have Bitcoin. We want to become a Bitcoin uh, node, an economic node where Bitcoin's coming into us. We send out what we call perfect food. And then we go take that Bitcoin and buy more beef and do this whole cycle. Um, and it's been rather challenging to not add any food additives, additives into it because we've been, as we get involved with the USDA more, they want to add potassium sorbate. Um, I can't remember the other additive. And we just said, no, we're not doing it. Like, why? If we have a product that works now, why do we need it? Is that something that would be on the ingredient label or could you like skirt around that? Because that's what you were telling me all this stuff. And I was like, I feel like there's stuff in our food that we don't even really know just because of the USDA. Right. We'd have to put that on the label because it's added into the bar. But for example, example, what I was telling you is that when they make pre-made hamburger patties, if your ingredients even say the best uh, grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative beef on it, well, when they're going through the assembly line at the USDA, they can be sprayed with unknown microbials or antimicrobial agents or antifungal agents. And they don't have to put that on the label because it's, it's not part of the food. Somehow they've messed with the, the verbiage so that it doesn't have to be on the ingredient list, but they're still sprayed with a bunch of stuff. And they need to because otherwise salmonella and E. coli will break out in these big processing facilities and get people sick. So they, they kind of have to do it. Yeah, because they're that like unsanitary and moving that much volume and it's it's crazy. What what else have been like big challenges uh, that maybe were unforeseen, something, you know, potentially that even you knew you're getting into, but you'd like to overcome? Because I realize that, yeah, the USDA, starting anything in food is like extremely, extremely challenging. Definitely challenging. Um, so in terms of the USDA, our biggest thing with them is they're just slow. It's been taking forever to get stuff going. Um, I feel like since COVID, they're even slower. There's like half the people are gone. You call in and no one really answers. We are supposed to be 
awarded or denied a grant last uh, November 2023. We haven't even heard an update and it's already two or three months later. Um, but the challenging part in terms of the Alpha Bar itself was taking different. So we're so used to having our food homogenized. Like you go to the store and you buy whatever it is, some orange juice, and you expect it to be the exact same next time or whatever product. It has to be the exact same every time, but that's not the way natural foods work. So when we're sourcing different beef, we get beef from small ranches, ranchers. And so sometimes we get all of our beef from like one animal. It's like a full animal. It's maybe has a little different fat content than another animal. It could be a different breed. And so you get this, this varying beef inputs, even though they're the same cuts, they're different fat contents. And so we had to really figure out a method in our bars to come out with a, a good consistency every time. And while we do hit a pretty good consistency, I believe every batch we make probably has just a slightly different taste. And we like it that way because that's the way natural foods are supposed to be. We don't need these same exact homogenous foods every single time. Yeah, it's just like not real. I it's mean, not it's, real. It's, not, <laughs> it's not realistic in any yeah. sense of the word. Um, you know, what has the feedback been like from, from people and, and how do we get more people on board? Cause for me, I was like, I found you guys, I'm like, this is like the, a match made in heaven, right? Like, this is what I've wanted for a while. Like, I don't have to eat stupid Lara bars or bring like a pocket steak or, you know, I still do that maybe, but right. it's kind of not as convenient for sure. Um, and you know, people I've turned on to it, love it as well, but it's, uh, some people are like, you know, that aren't, I guess maybe as meat centric as we are. They're not really into it or it's kind of like, oh, that's weird. Like, is that jerky or what, what's going on here? So, right, so know, how do we overcome that? People like you who love it. And then we've ran into people who really dislike it. And a trend I've seen is people who are into health and have experienced eating like natural foods, pretty much they like it. Um, and we've gotten different feedback about the texture. It's really hard designing a product because if you get half the people who don't like the texture and half people that do, what do you do? Well, so that's about where we're at. And we left it the way it is because we enjoy it ourselves. Some people don't like it and that's fine. We don't expect everyone to like it. But a lot of people who don't like it are people who are used to eating cliff bars and they expect it to taste like a Snicker bar or something. We, got, we had a guy that told us he expected it to taste like a chocolate bar. And we're like, dude, the ingredients. There's are, no chocolate in here, no chocolate. sir. It's beef, uh, butter, honey, and tallow. And if you want to get the berry in that one, you can get that one too. But yeah, I guess, I guess generally speaking, people's taste buds and palates are so out of whack compared to what real foods are. We're so used to buying these factory produced ultra flavorful things. And don't get me wrong, the people who design these chemicals and, and food additives and all these things, they're brilliant people who have PhDs and they work at these food companies and they, they know exactly your, psychi your psychology and they design food to excite your brain in this unnatural way. And so some people stepping back into an alpha bar are like, oh man, this is too like real or something. But it's too boring for the uh, boring for the low dopamine brain. That's right. But if you don't know, our our bars are very simple. We source the purest high quality ingredients. Um it's grass fed beef, regenerative, um, tallow, butter, and honey. We have two variants of that, blueberry almond and cranberry pecan. Yeah. And even the grass fed, like, you know, I've posted about this. I've talked about this. Like people don't eat, people eat a grass fed, grass finished steak and be like, this doesn't really taste good. Or like, this is off. I'm like, no, no, this is what it's fucking supposed to taste like people. Like this is real. 
food. You've just been like eating JBS and cargo beef for your whole life. That's like disgustingly like full of corn and soy fat and intramuscular. Like you're eating a diseased animal. And now you move to something that's literally like a high octane animal that has less fat content, but better fat content. And, um, you know, a whole diverse pasture diet. And, you know, we've, the nutrient density is proven. I've t- we've talked to Stefan Von Fleet, like the research is now out there, like the f- quality of life, the feed, the pastures that your, your food is eating will be translated to more nutrition for yourself. So like it's undebatable. Right. And a big part of us was the quality of life of animals. I mean, we've all seen pictures of feedlots and stuff and, you know, I don't want to support any of that. I don't. I don't, our company doesn't want to be part of that. We want to support small farmers and ranchers because that's how we rebuild this food system is we do it locally, we do it small, and we do it the right way, the way nature intended. How do you think, you know, say Alphabard blows up, like, is it even possible to have like a, cent- a big, large scale company like that's doing it still the right way, you think? Or is is there a certain scale where everything kind of just goes to shit? Because I think about this a lot and, you know, you see every single good company like Primal Foods and whatever, all the toothpaste brands, deodorant brands that are all, they always get bought up by Procter Gamble, General Mills bought Epic, like they always get bought up. And then eventually it's like they ride out a wave for a couple of years and then they're like, all right, we're going to see if anybody notices. And it's like, to me, the most fiat thing in the world. So how do we, you know, how does Bitcoin like enable that from not happening? And is there a point of no return for scale of quality? I think there is. I, you know, we've talked about this several times, my wife and I, if we ever got the company big enough, we've decided we don't want to have it big. We want to have it a size that's manageable for us and maybe a small amount of employees. We're not after some huge multi-million or maybe multi-million that's still small, but hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollar business. We don't want it. You know, if it gets to that point and we need to have to, we have to match the demand, well, then we have to look into some other way of franchising out the business and creating small local ones. That's what we want to do. We don't want to work up this company like another meat bar on the market and sell it off. You know, we want to keep it small and local. I say that now, and I hope you can come back in five or 10 years and ask me the same thing. And, you know, I didn't sell it off to General Mills or something that I really never want to. I think that's a, like the franchise piece is interesting, right? Because that's really actually pretty prevalent in yeah. in um in our society. McDonald's, Chick Fil right, A, Starbucks, like a lot of these are franchises, but it doesn't fix the problem. Though, yeah, right? it doesn't fix the problem. But if you could do it a more decentralized way, I think it could work. You know, say there's like a 25 year old in like Georgia who wants to do Alpha Bars. You know, it's like yeah, maybe there's an agreement somehow or without like you know stealing the business and it helps you scale like there, i feel like there's ways to do it but i love because it is the hyper local approach and especially for me it's like you know local beef producers they shouldn't want to ship their beef to like the east coast like that's right. stupid that's a waste of energy like exactly. and that's what when you have the incentives aligned like i feel like that'll almost kind of naturally like work itself out yeah and we right now since we've only been around for a year we are doing most of our sales shipping out. And that was not our intent. We thought we would be in local stores sooner. We want to sell most of our alpha bars locally. And I mean, it turns out if you want to pay the shipping, you can, but it's not the most ideal thing. Um, We would much rather prefer 
to be fully USDA certified. Let me step back. Right now with the USDA, we can legally only sell direct to consumer. So that means I can sell to Tristan on the internet. I can sell to him face-to-face. Any one of you could come to our website and buy it for yourself. But if you're a reseller, you have a store and you're coming to us and say, I want to get wholesale pricing and like sell a bunch of your bars for you. I can't do that. We've been limited by the USDA. And why is that? Health? Contamination? I don't really know. It doesn't, there's not a little lot of sense the USDA makes, honestly. That's crazy. So is it like, are you going to get approved eventually? Are there things, yeah, are there things that you haven't done that they're looking for or it just takes that long? I, I don't really know what the holdup is, but it just takes so long to get them out here. We've had them out here for the initial like inspection. So they've, the USD people have been out here and they have watched us make a full batch. And then I gave them all the data. They're very picky how we dehydrate our meat. So traditionally we wanted to do it like a traditional method at lower temperatures, but we cannot do it. Even direct to consumer, we have to hit our meat to 165 degrees or else it's illegal. So we have to go much higher than like the natives made it. And you know, you probably know more how it's probably it, it destroys more nutrients going that high. But I don't think we're at the point where we're destroying a lot of nutrients. But it, the, and my point is you have to follow all these rules that don't necessarily make sense in all aspects. And it is taking a long time because this bureaucratic process, the USDA. And honestly, we are waiting on that grant because it's a, if we win this grant, this is going to be a pivotal moment in this company because then we'll have a bunch of money to buy machinery that we can speed this up because right now it's my wife and i all by hand you know and it's a lot of work it's we're really doing proof of work with Alphabar. i love it man is the grant situation like there's stipulations with like to get the grant like because i think i had this misconception that grant is like free money but it's it's kind of like you're agreeing to a lot of things to get money is that kind of like how it works or or how is it as far as i'm aware it's essentially free money as long as we're using it in the right way like we can't use any of that money for marketing buying materials it's specifically for machinery Mm. and right now you know i form each bar in a mold by hand and that takes a lot of time and my hands get sore afterwards after several hundred bars so we get an extruder in there and it can extrude bars and that will change the game a lot um and a, a packaging so we didn't intend to have this packaging we have now going so long, but as a small business, you can't just buy a whole bunch of materials and just throw it out the door. It's, it's hard to make a profit. You know, a lot of people say our bars are expensive, but if you look at our inputs and our, and our profit from a bar, it's not that much. I mean, we're not getting rich here. Yeah. And we talked about the dollar per calorie is really the people are spending, you know, a couple bucks on like an 80 calorie jerky stick and you know, your bar is like 300 calories. It's, Definitely worth it, in my opinion. And I, I did all that math. I was like, this is the best deal that exists. And when you're out in the wilderness, like you want, you need calories, and uh, you want a small form factor. And I think it's the perfect, you know, fit. But yeah, the USDA is insane, and people don't really understand how centralized our food system is. It's, it is inconceivable. I wrote a whole book on, or half a book on it, and it's still like every time I talk to people that are in it with boots on the ground trying to start a business. It's tough. And, and again, appreciating the small, you know, businesses have to start somewhere, like support them, support Rob, support any small business that we work with, that we partner with, because else we're not going to have alternatives. We're just going to get squashed left and right. 
And it's just going to be yeah, a bunch of cliff bars that are grown with, you know, glyphosate sprayed oats and all this other bullshit. And that's how kind of the fiat world works. But we, we need to break free and, and create these opt outs. Right. And like if we had our way, we would source all of our beef from Colorado and every piece of our ingredients from Colorado and preferably have them for selling stores and not have to ship. But to stay afloat right now, and you know, if you have the economic incentive to have us ship you bars, and yeah, that's awesome, we'll do it. But the end goal is to not ship. Like we get a lot of Europeans and like Canadians asking us to ship, and I'm like, it doesn't make sense. No, like we could do it, but we need an Alpa bar in France or something, and in Canada, we don't necessarily want to use all those resources to ship bars over because it kind of defeats the point of our business partially, but. It doesn't in a way because our ranchers, this money that is coming in is flowing directly back to local small scale ranchers. And that, that's what we love about it. That's the key. It's just getting back to a hyper local approach, right? I mean, it's the same thing we're doing with Wyoming based. Sounds like, can you ship a beanie to United Kingdom and clothing? You know, it's a bit different, but still like, you know, I would love to see some of them doing hundred percent wool stuff in, in Europe or in the UK or in Canada. Like that's the whole point here is to have it within your community. And then, like you said, you're giving it back. You're sourcing it from the local community and getting paid from the local community. It's all just staying within. And yeah, I think that's what we really need to get back to. Right. And then another big pillar of our business is the Bitcoin. We, we don't rely on any centralized party for our Bitcoin operation. I don't want to get too many details about it because, you know, there's security aspects. But we essentially run our own servers and nodes. And when you buy alpha bars from us using bitcoin we do take monero as well because we have a big base of customers that use monero for privacy and i totally understand that and you know we have a lot of other altcoins asking us to take them i'm like no it's bitcoin monero and then dollars that's what we're doing that's what we are so i am a bitcoin maximalist but i also do understand why you would use monero i think it has a, a place um forgot what my first just running the server, the BTC pay server. Yeah, I mean, no. that's proof of work. It's not easy, folks. This is like no. not low barrier to entry, like accepting Bitcoin for payment. Like it's not, I'm not trying to do this personally. Right. It's, I mean, it is in, a on setup. One, one side of the hand, it is easy. You just kind of have to spin up like a BTC pay server instance. But for production environment, like having it function all the time, it's, you have to maintain it. And then you add lightning on top of that. And Lightning is much more time intensive, balancing channels and making sure you have enough received liquidity. And we get most of our payments in Bitcoin. And I'm happy to say that in 2023, about 45% of all of our orders were done either in Bitcoin or Monero. And prim primarily, I think about 8% of that group was Monero. And then the rest of that, the 92% was Bitcoin. And it was over half lightning. So I think our number one payment method was still fiat, but close second was Bitcoin lightning, then Bitcoin on chain, and then Monero. I was very happy about Th that. That might be the highest percentage I've ever heard. It's you know, I know a lot of friends that take P Bitcoin payment, but when you incentivize it too, and you're like, fiat's going to be a premium. Well, we, we, we want a, Bitcoin. We you had know? a big decision at the beginning. We're like, should we charge fiat customers 10% more? Because that's more of a like a negative yeah, yeah. entry to that. We decided instead of taking that negative approach, we were going to incentivize Bitcoiners by giving them 
10% off. Recently, we've bumped it down to 5% because we also give 5% back with Oshi. So it is still 10, it's still 10% back total, but you get 5% directly off the good and then you get 5% sats back. Yeah, I know like people like Parker Lewis like the Fiat Premium, but I don't think they really like have marketed uh, small products like this that uh, you know, need volume. And it, it just brushes <laughs> off negatively yeah. on. And honestly, we need, we have to take credit cards. Like some businesses are Bitcoin only and we've been kind of asked to do Bitcoin only. And I'm like, well, we can't survive. There's still... We're, we're, we're years away from that, but it's, yeah. it's good. I mean, 45%, that's really damn good, man. And so another thing is we don't sell our Bitcoin. We hold our Bitcoin in our little treasury and we only sell it if we have to. Well, that's the whole point, people. If you start a business right now and you like, you know, doing whatever, but you take Bitcoin for payment, you hold it and you're also buying it yourself, like you don't need to be like, cutting the quality of the business to make money to scale because bitcoin will be that safe haven for you and then eventually that will grow and appreciate and be your financial flexibility so then we can actually have high quality businesses right. like one thing i've noticed so since becoming a bitcoin business i'm very in tune with other bitcoin businesses and it's very hands down that there's Bitcoiners making a business, you are going to receive a very high quality good. Bitcoiners don't do fiat things and make shitty products. I mean, obviously there's some out there, but the majority of Bitcoin businesses, you're going to get a, a high quality proof of work, like based product. Because who's going to give you Bitcoin for a shit product? Nobody. Exactly. Like I'm not willing to give like any of my Bitcoin away if Alpha Bar was like half the quality it is. But exactly. it's like you're incentivized to make a good product but then you have the financial flexibility if you're taking Bitcoin and saving it to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to blow up in a year or two, but give me 10 years and I'll have the financial ability to, you know, invest way more back into the company. Right. We, one of my favorite comments was we had a, I don't want to name any names, but a relatively popular Bitcoiner tell me, um, he said, I don't ever part with my Bitcoin. Like, and Really, the only thing I've ever considered that has made me want to part with my Bitcoin is buying your bars. I was like, dang, that's a that's a big compliment. Yeah, it's not that big until he does it. Yeah. I, Bitcoiners, you need to spend your Bitcoin for companies that matter, right? right. Like so, I know it's it's worth it, right? Like th there's nothing. The biggest compliment is just giving you Bitcoin for Alpha Bar because yeah, that's, that's like I value your quality products so highly and you, I want to support your business long term. Here's, you know, my hard-earned sats. Yeah, so before this business, I kind of had this Bitcoin mantra of like, buy and hodl, right? That's the main theme. That's totally changed now. I am now more spend and replace. If I can spend Bitcoin somewhere, I'll do it and I'll replace that Bitcoin. So I have the same amount, right? Just take more fiat, you go mine fiat somewhere and get it. And then you buy more Bitcoin, you spend and replace. And that's how we get a lot of this stuff going. I mean... You know, a lot of this whole thing about increased fees on the chain is is a bummer, but I feel like like Bitcoiners who really understand it are okay paying that two, three, four dollar fee. It sucks, but this is the network that we're choosing to support. There's always, yeah, there's a cost to transact and I mean that's only gonna continue to go up over time. Yeah. And um I agree. I mean, I've sold so many things for Bitcoin, I've bought a lot of things for Bitcoin and I'm all for it. Because it's just, you know, so as someone who has sold things for Bitcoin, you know how much it means to get paid in Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. When we get and, a Bitcoin order, I literally, my 
And it's not I, that hard. Like, just go replace it. Like, me, I'm actually can get bad with that sometimes. Like, I'll pay a podcast editor in Bitcoin, and then I'm like, oh shit, I forgot to like replace, replace that. It, yeah. So it's like you got to be diligent on that. But um, it's the best way to do it. Another thing I want to say is I see this theme all the time: Bitcoin or Lightning failed. It doesn't work, and all these things. And well, I can tell you directly from our customer base, it works, and we get we have settled hundreds of orders using lightning and it's fast and instantaneous you know it's hard to get feedback i don't know if there's been customers out here that have had a lot of technical difficulty with but from my perspective it works great and then i actually did a survey well you know i'm still small and alpha is still small in terms of social media i did a poll on twitter asking do you use custodial wallets or uh self-hosted wallets when you pay with lightning and i think it was around like 80 percent of people use self hosted wallets and 20% were custodial. And that's great. That's a great number. It's cool to get that kind of data because we really don't know. And there's not a lot of people doing this. It was only like 16 or 20 votes, but you know, that's not very statistically relevant, but it is what it is. Rob, where can people find and buy the Alpha Bar? Well, you can find Alpha Bar on eatalpha.com. So it's E-A-T-A-U-P-A. And you can just Look at our homepage there and scroll through it and you'll see a pretty good representation of what's in our bar. You'll get a really good sense of our ideals and our mission. Then obviously you just go to the product page and, and order whatever you want. A lot of people are don't know what they're getting into, so they order the three-bar sample pack. Um, they do, each bar does have honey in it. it has, each bar has one teaspoon of honey. So it's, it's pretty minimal. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at eatalpa. Um, we don't really care how you say Alpa. We've heard a thousand different ways, but the way we say it, it's a Basque word. It's Alpa. You can say it however you want. We don't really care. Um, but spelling is A-U-P-A. Yeah, follow us. We're we're kind of in stealth phase, I would say, right now. We haven't really done a lot of a lot of marketing. It's pretty much just us on our Twitter account. But we we have plans to to start growing over the next year. I mean, I think it's going to blow up at some point. It's just like too good not to. I'm happy to be partnered and promote it. It's like, to me, one of the best discoveries, most convenient snacks, and yeah, based company behind it. You guys are awesome. We set you with the promo code, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a couple now. I think it's what D D Radio um, for the podcast. Uh, is it D Radio Five? I don't know. You can try D Radio or D Radio Five, um, and check it out. I love them, especially for hiking, skiing hunting, camping, backpacking. I mean, you want like a caloric dense snack food. Um, and that's like, I almost want to do an experiment this summer. I just go like three, four days in the, in the mountains and only bring like Alpa bars and maybe yeah, a, I mean, early explorers. It's yeah. A food. They, they Fishing rod. Years on it. Yeah. So you can eat just solely pemmican or Alpha bars and survive. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're tired of going down the grocery store aisle and you're just swamped by vegan bars that made from the same industrial sludge. They all have like Literally. what tapioca syrup it's or some nonsense in it. It's not real food. Like it's, it's real crazy. Food. And then they, they get you and try to market with plant-based and, and vegan. Stay away from that stuff. You know, unfortunately we're not in stores yet. We're on only online. We do local pickups. So if you're around Longwell, we'd much prefer you come in here and you show you the kitchen and stuff. And you can do a local pickup, avoid shipping, but many of you will be not local, so we do ship. But yeah, we plan on being in, once we get USDA certified, we can wholesale to, you know, little mountain shops. We want to start with little tiny shops first. You know, I don't want to get to a point where we're like selling bars at Safeway or 
I don't I, Whole Foods. I don't want to be in Whole Foods. I want to be small, small but big. You know. Yeah, small but impactful. Impactful. I, I love it. Well, Rob, thanks so much for hosting me. Thanks for the chat. The EMF stuff. I mean invaluable right there's almost nobody i've talked to a lot of the engineers who do know about emfs and there's just not a lot of us so it's, it's really very, great like you said the word nuance is very nuanced topic and it's very difficult it's very complex so you know no one has just this direct answer for you yeah yeah and for those who have bought my emf 101 course thank you um, Rob will be appearing on my EMF 201 course, which is an even deeper dive into modern RF technology. And that'll be fun because, yeah, as you kind of got a taste here, it's uh, very nuanced, very technical, but they're easy mitigation strategies. And that'll all be at decentralizedhealth.io. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Rob. We, uh, we appreciate you and it's been a blast. All right. How great was Rob Rebeck, former RF engineer, extremely based, living the decentralized lifestyle. There's very few people who I can geek out on EMFs with because there's almost no engineers who understand that they are actually bad for our health. And there's very few people in the health space who understand electromagnetism. Now, if you enjoy this conversation, you are going to love my EMF 201 course, which has a two-hour cameo from Rob. So we dive even deeper into radio frequencies, into 5G, 6G. We even talk about military directed energy weapons. And it's really affordable. It's the most comprehensive electromagnetic education on the internet. You can go to decentralizedhealth.io slash education and use code RF10 for a discount. If you are a health practitioner or really want to take control of your health, these courses are comprehensive, affordable, and I think imperative if you want to understand all aspects of optimal health. So check it out. And don't forget, 25% of proceeds goes to the Decentralized Health Fund to fund research.